for 22 years. Her name was Delia Knox. During the Brownsville Revival back in the, uh, what, late 90s, early 2000s, Delia Knox was healed. And this is part of her testimony that we're going to be showing this evening. So if at all possible, come for the, the, the book presentation. Stay over for a time of prayer. We're not going to keep you forever, but uh, we'd, we'd love to have you here. I'd like for you, if you have your Bibles... To turn with me to the gospel, I call it the gospel because I believe it's the fifth gospel, the book of Acts, chapter number two. You know, since our, our recently completed revival, I've been giving a lot of thought about this matter of the presence of God. And as I thought about it, I thought, you know, it goes back a lot further than the revival, much earlier than the re when the revival started. It's kind of been stirring up a message in my heart that I've now decided to use as our final message in our sermon series, Passionate Worship. And as I thought about it, you know, the groundwork for God placing this message in my heart that I'm going to share with you this morning actually began to be laid during another sermon series that I was doing, I think almost a year ago, uh, Claiming Your Promised Land. I, I don't know if you remember it. It might ring a bell. But uh, that, that's when God began really dealing with me about the formulation of this message. And the thought that began stirring this entire process was me thinking about those grumbling Israelites that God's leader Moses chose to lead out of Egyptian bondage. Now, I'm going to say this at the risk of alienating perhaps some of my congregation before I get started this morning, but I think if you'll hear me out, you'll understand where I'm coming from. But as I thought about Moses leading that group of two and a half million grumblers, I began to have this feeling that had I been a part of that bunch of grumblers and complainers, I probably would have made the same stupid decisions that they made. And if you remember the story from Numbers chapter number 13, their grumbling and complaining, their lack of faith, their lack of trust in the presence of God going with them wherever they went, led to an entire generation of God's people dying off in the wilderness and not getting to enter the land that God had promised to give to them. And uh, you may have already figured this out, but I'll just say that, by the way, when I say, had I been a part, I'm also including you. <laughs> you. I, I really strongly believe that had we been and had we joined in with the report of the 10 spies from Numbers 13 who came back with a negative report uh, about possessing the promised land rather than taking a step of faith and agreeing with two of the spies whose names were Caleb and Joshua, I, I have a feeling we'd have probably gone with the majority and listened to the report of the 10 rather than the report of the two. Now, 
There may be some in the room this morning, quite likely, who have no idea what I'm talking about. Just let me say you can find the story in Numbers chapter number 13. But as you might guess, I will give you a short summary of that in order to add context to what I'm going to share with you. If you go back to the beginning of all of that story taking place, this man named Moses, the leader that God had chosen to lead his people out of Egyptian slavery and bondage. The man that God had chosen to lead the people to the land that God had promised to give them. Moses sent 12 spies into this promised land. The land was known as the land of Canaan. And their job was to report back to the people about that land as well as any possible dangers or threats that they might encounter as they attempted to receive that promise. So what happened was, well, let me just say this. The reason that it was called the promised land is because God had promised to their ancestors that he was going to, now this is important, he was going to give to them a land flowing with milk and honey. That's simply God's way of describing to them, I'm going to give you a land where you're going to experience abundance such as you've never experienced abundance before. I'm going to give it to you. And God's promise was that they wouldn't even have to fight to overtake the inhabitants of this land. God was just going to hand it to them. So as Moses and these people approached the entrance to that promised land, Moses sent these 12 spies in so that they could report back to the people. And what they found in the land of Canaan was just as God had told them. The Bible tells us that they found clusters of grapes that were so big that those clusters had to be carried on poles on the shoulders of two men. You don't find that at Dillon's or Walmart. (laughs) They, They found that the grass was abundant for the feeding of their flocks. They also found an abundance of, of pomegranates and figs. This land was literally bursting with opportunity for those who were to inhabit it. But that's not all they saw. They also saw giants in the land. These were descendants of a character named Anak. Men who were so gigantic that they made these 12 spies who were normal men just like you and I look like grasshoppers in their own sight. Big dudes. So when these 12 spies returned with their report, 10 spies reported that even though the land was full of opportunity, they were fearful of these giants. And they, their, their recommendation was that these people were not prepared to overtake these giants, so we cannot enter this land. That was the report of 10 of them. However, two of those spies, whose names I've already identified as being Caleb and Joshua, did their best to remind the people of God that God had promised to give the land to them. 
So if they would just trust in God's promise, God would overtake those giants and literally give the land to them. And having heard both reports, the people chose to believe the report of the ten rather than the report of Caleb and Joshua. And the result was that they all wandered in that desert wilderness for the next 40 years until they all died off. All of them except Caleb and Joshua. So when I made the statement a little earlier that I really believe that you and I would probably have done exactly as those people did in following the report of the ten rather than the report of Caleb and Joshua, I fully realize that in making such a statement, I risked the, the possibility of losing an entire congregation of faith-walking, faith-talking possessors of the power and the promises of God. I realize that. And if that's you, man, I'm happy for you. But for those of you who do walk with that kind of sheer confidence and faith of Caleb and Joshua, I don't want you to tune me out because I have something for all of us this morning. And I want you to, I want you to tune me in. And I, You see, I, I, believe, <clears throat> I believe that the difference between the reports of the ten spies and the report that Caleb and Joshua came back with was that Caleb and Joshua walked in the manifest presence of God. What does that mean? The other ten were walking in their own fleshly strength. In other words, they were part of the group that was going to become the grumblers, the complainers. Caleb and Joshua, however, I fully believe with all of my heart, were worshipers. They understood that, that the presence of God had promised to give them this land. In other words, those ten spies made judgments based upon what they saw with their own two eyes. Caleb and Joshua, on the other hand, rest upon God's promise that his presence with, would be with his people and would allow them to possess the land that he promised to them. It was God's presence with them that had delivered them from Pharaoh's bondage out of Egypt. It was God's presence with them that had parted the waters of the Red Sea so that they could walk through on dry ground while Pharaoh's armies were in hot pursuit of them. It was God's presence that provided water from a rock when they were thirsty. It was God's presence that provided quail and manna outside of their tent every morning for 40 years. It was God's presence that had promised to give them this land. And in spite of the evidences of God's presence in their midst, they chose to listen to a report that had been made based upon what some men saw with their eyes rather than through eyes of faith. Now that lengthy introduction brings me to this thought. We need the manifest presence of God. 
We need his glory walking with us every day of our lives. The glory of his presence with us. That's what we've been singing about this morning. You don't need to go there, but just let me tell you that back in the book of Leviticus, chapter number 16, verse number 2, God had told his priest for that appointed time, whose name was Aaron, who happened to be Moses' brother, that God's presence was going to appear in the form of a cloud upon the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies, all of which was in a a handmade tent that the people of Israel had constructed to house the presence of God with them on their journey. That glory was commonly referred to as being the glory cloud. Later on in the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, the Jewish people came up with another name for that glory cloud. They called it the Shekinah glory cloud. And yes, we have a young lady with that name sitting right back here. What a great name. The Shekinah glory cloud, which simply meant the visible majesty of the divine presence of God. Now, this Shekinah glory cloud was the same cloud which was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to guide these people of Israel on their way to the promised land. Now, there were reasons why God wanted a visible sanctuary, or in that case, this tent, to house his presence. There was a reason why God wanted that in the midst of his people. Let me share just a couple of those reasons with you. When these people left the land of Egypt, before they reached the Red Sea, Pharaoh's armies were in hot pursuit of them because they didn't want them to leave the land of Egypt. They were going to lose all their slave labor. And so even though they'd agreed with Moses, we'll let your people go, when the people left, here here comes Pharaoh and his armies to bring them back. And so this glory cloud... This presence of God, the Bible tells us in Leviticus 16.2 that this glory cloud came between God's people and the hosts of Egyptian armies. If you look at that verse from the trans, another translation or another reference in Exodus chapter 14, verse number 19, it tells us that this cloud was darkness to Pharaoh's army, but it was light to the people of God. God showing his visible presence in their midst. Now another interesting fact about this glory cloud, in that wilderness of Sinai through, through which they were traveling on their way to the promised land, daily temperatures in that region are what made it a wilderness. No plant life, nothing could survive In those extreme conditions. How extreme were they? I'm told that the heat index in the Sinai wilderness can routinely reach, the heat index, not the actual temperature, but the heat index can reach upwards of 150 degrees during the daytime. And in the same 24-hour period, at nighttime, can approach sub-freezing levels. I thought Kansas was the only place that could do that. 
So think about this. God sustained more than two and a half million people for 40 years in those types of conditions. How did he do it? He did it with a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. What did it do? It provided a covering for them from the extreme heat of the daytime. And it provided heat for them in the sub-freezing temperatures of the nighttime. As I've often joked, for 40 years, they had air conditioning during the day, heat at night, and God did it all without the help of Arab oil. That's what the presence of God can do. Do you think God was joking, friends, when he told Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse number 19, that my God can supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus? But moving forward, and I am still getting to my text, moving forward through the Old Testament into the New Testament and ultimately to the significance of the presence of God in your life and mine today, Let me share some more information with you about this glory cloud. Time passed. The people of God entered their promised land, began enjoying its abundance. Under King David's leadership, they became the most powerful nation on the face of the then known world. David's son, whose name was Solomon, At David's inspiration began to have a desire inside of him to to build God a, a temple that was worthy of God's presence. That tent made out of badger skins he didn't feel like was worthy of the God that he served. So so he began making all of the his father David began making all of these preparations for this great temple. And his son Solomon brought those dreams to pass and built this magnificent temple in the city of Jerusalem to house the presence of God. But that temple that Solomon erected, as spectacular as it was, inlaid with gold and riches unspeakable almost, it was still just a building. A building of brick, a building of mortar, a building of of stone, building of timber. It was just a building until the presence of God was ushered into it through the Ark of the Covenant carried on the shoulders of those men. I can't pass that up. i got to preach on that for a moment. Friends, here's the deal. A church isn't a church because it has stained glass windows. A church isn't a church because it has a choir or cathedral ceilings or maybe even a good preacher. A church isn't a church because it offers great worship. A church becomes what it was ordained by God to be when his presence enters into that church. That's what will make us a church that makes a difference is when we allow the presence of God to move unrestrained in our midst. But even 
Again, moving on, even after God's presence took up residence in that great temple of Solomon, you know what God's people did? They began to repeat the sin cycle. That means they gradually began to not love the presence of God being in their midst as they should have, and they gradually began to fall back into their sinful ways. And man, I'm, t- I'm covering a lot of... I, I mean, I started this thing in Exodus this morning. I'm already to Ezekiel. You get to the book of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel tells us that God was so disappointed that they had fallen back into sin. He had his prophet Ezekiel begin to prophesy to these people in Ezekiel chapter number 10 that unless they repented of their sinful ways and began to once again seek the presence of God, his presence was going to eventually depart from them. But God being full of mercy, just like God has always been, he wanted to give his people every opportunity in the world to turn from their wickedness. So instead of just saying, okay, I'm done with him, I'm out of here, God's presence withdrew from them in stages. Hoping that at each step in the stage of withdrawal, that they would come to their senses and repent of their wicked ways. So in chapter 10, verse number 4 of the book of Ezekiel, we are told that God's presence went up from the altar, the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, and withdrew to the threshold of what was the Holy of Holies inside the temple. And then in verse number 18, we're told that the glory or the presence of the Lord realized that they still weren't being repentant of their wicked ways, and so he went from that threshold of the Holy of Holies and stood above the cherubim which overlooked the altar. And then in verse 19, it tells us that those cherubim, those, those angels that were given charge of, of, of protecting the, the mercy seat, lifted their wings, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them, and it stood at the entrance to the eastern gate of the temple. Now, here's why that's important. When God's people came to the temple to worship, there was only one way that they could get in. It was through the eastern gate. And so God is, the Spirit of God, I'm not saying that I know what God was thinking. I'm saying that I kind of have an idea of what was happening here. God is saying to himself, Surely if I encounter my people at the point where they come to do their daily service at the temple, surely then they will realize their need of me and turn from their wicked ways. So I'm just going to wait at that gate for a while and give them an opportunity to turn from their wickedness and seek my face once again, seek my presence. But guess what? It didn't happen. And then you come to Ezekiel chapter number 11. And it tells us that God's glory then left the city of Jerusalem and stood on the Mount of Olives outside the city. And when God's glory left that city of Jerusalem, that city was doomed. Now I'm going to cover a lot of territory here again. When I say doomed, what I mean was That city of Jerusalem was eventually overtaken by the Babylonians. God's people once again taken into Babylonian captivity. 
The presence of God was no longer with them. And you know what? Now, some 2,500 years later, the presence of God still has not been welcomed by God's people in the city of Jerusalem. Because in Ezekiel chapter number 43, verse number 16, we are told that the city of Jerusalem would be without God's blessing until his glory returned. And Ezekiel gives us a prophecy of that in verses 1 through 5. Ezekiel sees a vision of that time when Jesus returns a second time. Not the first time that Jesus was going to come, but that Jesus was going to return a second time with all of his saints that are with him. That's going to be us. And his feet touch down on that same Mount of Olives. He will then lead his people into the city of Jerusalem again. And he will take his rightful place upon the throne and establish a millennial kingdom from which he will rule and reign with us. Now, I've covered a lot of territory. Don't you wish you could go through the Bible that quick? But I'm not done. For my purposes this morning, I want us to understand the critical part of all that I've told you up to this point is that God's presence left God's people. And as a result of the people of God, Israel's rejection of him, he left them and eventually revealed himself again in the person of a baby whose name was Jesus Christ. John tells us in John chapter 1, verse number 12, He came to his own, but his own received him not. But such as did receive him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. That's us. They rejected him. His presence departed from them. So he made his presence known to us through Jesus Christ. We've received the promise of Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How many of you are thankful for that? But it doesn't end there. There's more to it than just that. He has promised to those of us who believe that we shall receive the Holy Spirit and power. And that brings me to my text in Acts chapter number 2. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. I'm getting a drink, excuse me. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And after it happened, I want you to skip down to verse number 14. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Jewish men and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, 
that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. And your old men will dream dreams. What happened was they received the promise of Acts chapter 1 verse number 8. Where Jesus told them just before he ascended back to heaven, you will receive power. After that the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. This is that which came to them. Holy Spirit power. Power that will equip us. Power that will inspire us to minister to the good news of Jesus to our community and to our world. It came in Acts chapter number 2. It fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy of Joel 2.28. It, it, in Acts chapter 2 verse number 1, when that day came... The Holy Spirit fell on those who were gathered in that upper room. And the world has been forever changed. Did you know? Again, you know I, I like to get into these kinds of things. If you could tra track the spiritual heritage of every one of us sitting in this room this morning. We've come to believe in Jesus Christ because someone in that upper room was indwelled with power to be effective witnesses to the world. And that lineage of what they preached has been passed down to those, even to those of us that sit in this room this morning, the blood-bought, the saved, the redeemed of the Lord. Hallelujah. Now, where am I going with all of this? I want to share with you why I believe that it's so vitally important that we understand the benefits that are derived from having this Holy Spirit power, that is the present day presence or the glory of the Lord in our individual lives and not just in our individual lives but in our church. One thing that the Holy Spirit brings to us is authority. When Jesus taught people during his earthly ministry, his teachings were said to be different than any that they had ever heard before. Do you know why that was? Because he taught as one who had authority. In other words, he, he taught as one who knew what he was talking about. Well, we understand why. He was the son of God. He was the author. Brother, he's going to be the finisher. He taught as one with authority. One thing that the Holy Spirit brings to us is authority. And, and I know, I just want to say this, I, I know that there are some preachers who, who when they preach with this thing called authority, can sometimes come across as being arrogant even to the point of being offensive. And, and I think you, I hope you know me well enough by now that I, I never, never want to be offensive with my preaching. I will say, however that I have sat under the ministry of some pastors and preachers who you would have thought were travel agents from hell. Trying to make sure that you don't go there. 
laying guilt trips on their people for things like not attending church or not giving enough in the offering as they should or not serving as they should. I hope you know by now that's not my goal. That's not who I am. It's not my style. But here's what I do know. Sometimes when God puts something in my heart, I feel it so strongly, there will come a time when I just have to boldly, authoritatively speak it out. Speak out what he's birthed inside of me. A couple of weeks ago at the close of our revival, I sensed in my spirit that God wanted me to address this congregation that was there on that last night of revival, and he wanted me to do it before y'all left. I wanted to let you and the rest of our church know that when we come together on Sunday, that our services may not look like those revival services looked. Now, there's nothing wrong. Everything was right with those revival services. Amen? Amen? But I didn't want my congregation coming expecting that every service that we come together has to look like that in order to signify that the presence of the Holy Spirit was with us. And I felt that I needed to share that. And and fortunately, Pastor Corbett felt the same thing and allowed me to, to share that with you just as we were ready to leave. Now, why is that important? Well, first of all, I'm not Philip Corbett. (laughs) The ministry that God called me to is not not like Brother Corbett's. Um, That's okay. And And before I say anything else, before you lose me here, let me just tell you, I welcome the moving of the Holy Spirit in any way that he wants to move in our midst. Anyway, I just don't want his moving in our midst to have to be compared to any other ways in which he's moved elsewhere or in any other place. And I don't want us to manufacture something that looks spiritual. Are you with me? But me having that feeling... Pastor Corbett being sensitive to what the Lord was speaking to me is the authority that I'm talking about. God placed something in my heart that I had to share. And thankfully, Pastor Corbett felt the same urging of that spirit. And I was able to conclude it in the way that I felt like God wanted me to. That was God confirming what he had laid into my spirit and that I needed to take, in, take the authority and to step out in what he had given me to say. Now, having said all of that, hear me when I tell you, I don't have the corner on authority. But there are times when the Holy Spirit resides within me, within not only me, but you, that we need to step out in the authority that he makes available to those who possess Holy Spirit power. Now, hear me on this. I love the church and I love this church. And I don't know all that God has in store for me to do in his church, but I do know this. 
God impressed upon my spirit a long time ago. At a time when I was feeling lonely, unused, and abused as a pastor. Unappreciated for my efforts, despite the fact that I thought there was also a part of me which felt as though I was God's gift to his church. Amen? Here I was, God's gift to the church, and my congregation didn't even recognize it. <laughs> Go on. Yeah, you can laugh with me. You can laugh at me. It doesn't matter. But at that time, I was pastoring my first pastorate in Rowlett, Texas, a suburb of Dallas. And I was in the process, at least in my own mind, of using my many skills to build the fastest growing church in America. And you know what? It didn't happen. It just didn't happen. I was so full of myself that I was already planning what I would say in my first interview on CBN. And when that interviewer would ask me how I succeeded in building the fastest growing church in America, I'd give them the most pastorly answer I could. I give Jesus the glory. But I'd know that even in saying that, most of you fine folk would know that I had a big part in it somewhere. I had something to do with it, right? But as I said, it didn't happen. In fact, after a year and a half of struggling in that first pastorate, struggling to get that church body motivated, the congregation of that already tiny church had now just dwindled down to a handful of people. And for many years, I didn't tell anyone this. I've shared this in some of our Bible studies, but I've ne- I don't think I've shared it from the pulpit. One day, I was so frustrated with what God wasn't doing in that church. I'll never forget it. I went home from my church office. I went into the hallway of our home. Brenda and the kids were, the kids were in school. Brenda was at work. And I literally pounded my head against the wall in the hallway of my home in frustration and discouragement. And in pounding my head against the wall of that hallway, I asked God, God, why did you call me to be a pastor, especially if you knew I was going to make such a fool of myself in the process? And if the Spirit of God has ever spoken to my heart. He spoke to my heart in answering that question. He made me to know in my spirit, Terry, you're taking this failure thing too personally. It's not about you, Terry. It's about my work. And if you continue to take this failure personally as you are now, someday you're going to take the success that I have in store for you and give yourself credit for having done it as well. You see, what God was trying to get through my head, somewhat thick head, I might add, was that I needed to let go of my failures, I needed to let go of my disappointments. 
When things aren't happening as I'd like to see them happen, just let it go. Please, nobody break out in that song. I'll never get it out of my head for the rest of the day. But I can tell you that since that day, it doesn't matter whether I preach to four or five or 40 to 50 or 400 to 500. I preach as if I'm preaching to the entire world. You see, God changed me. He made me to understand that it's his work and that I'm merely a messenger of his glory. And I learned on that day this lesson. I'm not going to touch God's glory. It's his. And if he chooses me in some small way to be a part of what his glory wants to do in the midst of his people, God, here I am. Use me, but it'll be about you. It won't be about me. Why am I telling you this? Because in the days that have passed between that time and now, God has impressed upon my heart again that someday, in some way, he is going to use me to be one of many nameless, faceless people. Nameless, faceless people. Who he's going to use to bring about a mighty move of God to bring the glory of God back to his people. And I just have to add this. I've already told you this is my last church. And since God hasn't done that yet, I'm just assuming this is where it's going to happen. This is where it's going to happen. Through Trinity Faith Church in liberal Kansas and in the surrounding community, God is going to move in the midst of his people, and he's going to use not only me, but he's going to use each and every one of us if we will allow him to, to bring, out, bring about this move of God. Now, I've done my best to be obedient to what God has called me to do since that day, and he's blessed me for it. And I'm sharing this with you this morning to let those of you to whom God has spoken in times past, just like he spoke to me on that occasion, God still knows where you're at, he still knows what he's called you to do. And if you'll just be, make yourself available, he's still going to accomplish his work through you. Just hang in there, and we'll all see it happen together. We will. You see, when, whether God needs you for just one day through the course of your life, or if God just needs you to sing one song at a certain time in your life, or to meet one specific person's need throughout the course of your life, your day is going to come when God opens the shades of his glory and he calls you to do the very thing for which he created you to do. And this is what God is impressing upon my spirit these last few months to share with you today. Don't attach yourself too firmly to whatever successes you might have attained in the past or whatever recognition that you might have gained. Why? Because when God gets ready to increase, we must be willing to decrease. Scriptural proof of what I just said. 
John the Baptist was a mighty man of God. John the Baptist, he came preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. He was six months older than Jesus. He was Jesus' cousin. And while Jesus was still working in his dad's carpenter shop, this guy, John the Baptist, began preaching, calling people to repent and to prepare the way of the Lord. And then one day, Jesus is about ready to embark upon his ministry, and he goes to the river Jordan where John the Baptist is baptizing people. And he walks up to, J- walks up to JB, and he says, Hey, I need to be baptized by you. JB says, me baptize you? I'm not worthy to carry your sandals. Jesus said, no, I I need to be baptized you in order to fulfill all righteousness. Remember what happened? He baptizes Jesus, and Jesus comes up out of the water, and the Spirit of of the Lord Jesus, or Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descended from heaven in the form of a dove with a thundering voice accompanying it that said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And from that moment on, Jesus' ministry began to increase and JB's ministry began to decrease. And not too long after that, in Luke chapter number 7, We are told that it's gotten so bad for John the Baptist, he's finding himself on that particular day in prison. You know what happens when you get in prison. Everybody forgets about you. Nobody remembers anything that you've done of a positive nature. John the Baptist is feeling sorry for himself. And he still has a few of his own disciples that come and visit him every once in a while. And then they come and visit him. And he says, hey, guys, I want you to do something. I want you to go find this Jesus, you know, the one that's all all popular and everything right now. People are following. I want you to ask him something. I want you to ask him if he's the one that we've been looking for or if we should keep looking for another Now keep in mind, when he baptized Jesus, the Holy Spirit appeared in the form of a dove and a voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's a pretty good indicator. But he's forgotten that because he's discouraged. He's depressed. For heaven's sakes, he's sitting in prison. In just a short while, he's going to be beheaded. All because he did what God called him to do in ministry. But anyway, these these followers of JB, they go to Jesus and they said, uh, Jesus, I have a question for you. John the Baptist, your cousin, you know that great preacher, the one that got all the headlines before you started stealing. No, that's not what he said. He sent us to ask you a question. Jesus, are you the one that we are looking for? Or should we be looking for another? And Jesus gives this response in Luke chapter number 7, verse number 23 
excuse me, verse number 22. Go and report to John the things that you have seen and heard. What are those things? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with skin diseases are healed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have the good news preached to them. Do you know what Jesus' answer was? His answer addressed what Luke had said in Luke chapter number 4, verse number 18, where Jesus was preaching in his hometown in the synagogue. And it was his day to read from the scriptures. And so he turned to the book of Isaiah in the midst of that congregation. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me or given me his authority to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives. That is those whom death held in its grip. Recovery of sight to the blind. Jesus goes through that whole litany of Luke chapter 4 verse number 18. He closes the scroll and sits down in the one seat in that, in that synagogue that had been reserved for centuries for the soon long-awaited Messiah. Jesus sat down in the seat. And in doing so, he was telling them, I am him. And I'm here. So when he gave that answer to John's disciples... He didn't quite stop there because he tells them in verse number 23, anyone who is not offended because of me is blessed. What does that mean for us today? Well, I think I kind of know. It means that anyone who comes along with a better song, with a better ability to teach or preach, or a better ministry, or a better approach, than perhaps what you have or what I have. Don't be offended by them. Don't be offended by them. He, he, he's, saying, he's saying to them, saying to us, when somebody comes along that's do, been doing it better than the way we've been doing it forever, just get out of the way and tell them to go for it. Go for it. If that's what it takes to bring in the presence of God, go for it. And why is it important for us to understand this this morning? I apologize, I'm hurrying. Because this decreasing thing is tough. When you've been accustomed to having the attention, it's hard to give it up. But here's the truth. It's for God's glory. It's not for ours. It's not to make Trinity Faith a great church. It's to build the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all that matters. So don't get discouraged when you don't see the feet, seats filled as you'd like to see them filled on Sunday morning. We do what God's called us to do. And if somebody comes along with a better way to do it than we do, we say, go for it. I'm here to support you. Just one more thing and I'm closing. 
what I'm getting ready to share with you, I've already, again, shared with some of you in a different setting. Years ago, God gave me, I don't know if this was a vision. I don't know if Brenda just fixed too many beans. Or if it was just something that God was dropping in my heart to let me gain an identity with his people. But I do know that when he gave it to me, what he gave to me still applies to today, to the church of 2018. And here it is. It's so incredibly simple and stupid, it's almost shocking. But what I pictured, what what I believe God gave me was a a, a, a picture of a man pulling a donkey. A donkey who had a rope attached to his neck and he was pulling or attempting to pull the most technologically advanced supersonic aircraft that you'd ever want to see. Isn't that stupid? A man pulling a donkey who's pulling an aircraft. Or trying to. What God made me to know was that the aircraft represents God's people, the church, trying to accomplish God's plans and God's purposes for His church. And in my imagination, this man and his donkey, they're they're struggling, obviously, doing everything within their power to get this aircraft, his church, off the ground doing what aircrafts are created to do. So God says to this man, to his donkey, pulling this aircraft down a runway, put your donkey aside. Get into the aircraft. And when you get into the aircraft, you will see a button in the cockpit. Push it. And so the man does what God has told him to do. He pushes the button and, and whoosh. This aircraft comes to life and begins to do what an aircraft is designed to do. It begins moving down, it begins moving down the runway. It begins to ascend into flight. And the man and his donkey are inside the aircraft. And they're experiencing all that the aircraft is designed to do. What happens, friends, is we ask God to bless our efforts. God, bless what we're doing. Bless what we're doing. God is trying to say to us, why don't you get inside what I've already blessed? Rather than me blessing what you want to do, why don't you get inside what I'm already blessing? And that is Holy Spirit power to do what you can never hope to do in your own strength. Here's an example of it, and this is closing, I promise. Acts chapter number 3, we read that Peter and John, after having received the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter number 2, went to the temple to pray on a daily basis. They're heading there again in Acts chapter number 3. They've received the Holy Spirit. 
They're, they're making themselves available to do what God has called them to do. And on this particular day, as they're entering the temple to, to, to pray, they walk by this crippled man who also on a daily basis lays at the gate of the temple begging, whether it be for, net, for financial help or whatever help might be available to him. He's there again. And since Peter and John are accustomed to going to the temple through this gate daily, they've undoubtedly seen him there before. They've undoubtedly witnessed his begging. And so they come across him today. But today when they see him, they see him in a way that they've never noticed him before. Something changes in how they want to respond to him. You know what I believe it is? The reason they see him different is because the day before they got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so they see his need in a different way. And again, let your imagination flow like mine too often does. Peter looks at John. John looks at Peter. They both feel inside their pockets. They've left their change at home on the dresser. They don't have their billfold. And in shock, they look at each other and without saying so in so many words, they're probably wondering, what do we do now? And it's at this point that I believe God is up in heaven. And he's saying, yeah, yeah. Boys, this is where I've wanted you. I'm here, use me. And Peter, under the anointing and the leading of the Holy Spirit, addresses this beggar and he says, I don't have any silver or gold, but such as I do have, In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he reaches down and picks him up by the hand. And the beggar gets to his feet. And he begins walking and leaping and praising God. What I'm saying to you this morning, friends, is we need to understand that the presence of God is available to us. It's no longer veiled behind a curtain in the Holy of Holies. God tore that curtain in two at the moment that Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross. And from that point on, he made it available to come into the presence of God for whoever desires to come. He wants to live in us. He wants to empower us to do that which we could never hope to accomplish in our own strength. His power is available. His power is waiting to be used by us today. So why not just push the button? Push the button and let God do his thing rather than pulling this dead horse of religion and man's way of thinking as to how things ought to be done. I'm more interested in what God wants to do. Are you this morning? We can experience the glory of the Lord's presence. Musicians, would you come please? We can experience the Lord's presence. We can experience the Holy Spirit's power. You remember that Shekinah glory cloud that I told you canopied and covered the people of Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness? That was the presence of God. That was the Spirit of God, the same Holy Spirit who resides within each of us here this morning who knows Jesus as Savior and Lord. He lives in us. 
And he's just saying, use me. Use me to accomplish my purposes. Make yourself available. Oh, friends, God doesn't need anybody's help to do great and mighty things, but what he does need is people who will walk under his canopy, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Every head bowed and every eye closed. For many, many years now, I've tried to do my best to at some point in my morning, every morning, after I'm out of bed, I breathe this prayer. Holy Spirit, clothe me. Let me wear you today. When I come in contact with people, someone who needs the ministry that you've equipped me to help provide, make me sensitive enough to understand that you are right there with me, ready and waiting. Friends, it's called worship. When we become people of worship, we have direct access to the presence of God to meet and to do whatever He desires to do in our midst. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to do a work at this very moment. Some of us, Lord, are so steeped in the way that we've always done things. We think that you have to move in such and such a way. And so we put you inside this little box thinking that we can, t- we can contain how you move so that we don't embarrass anyone or maybe even that we, that we don't look too spiritual, look too fanatical. God, you can't be contained in a box. You can't be put on a leash and pulled around like a donkey pulling an aircraft. You've given us the means, the power to bring your church alive so that your church will do what you placed your church here to do. Would you stand to your feet this morning? I don't know if any of this has made any sense to you. I pray that it has. I'm just telling you what God has absolutely consumed my heart with. He wants to move in our midst. He wants to move in our church. He wants to move in our community. He wants to do great and mighty things that testify to who he is. But he can only do that through people who are willing to walk under the canopy of his glory. You're here this morning and say, Pastor, I want to make myself available to do what God created me to do.
just raise your hands and tell Jesus. I don't even care to look around and see who's raising their hand. Just, just tell Jesus, Lord, I'm here to do what, whatever you called me to do. If you see anything in me, God, that you can use, here it is. I'm available to use for your glory. I trust you, God. I trust you.